We are continuing to study friendship and uh, the importance of friendship. I need to start with a correction. Last week I cited a study that said, uh, as I cited it, eight out of ten people surveyed had no friends. Um, That is uh, deeply shocking and also not true. Um, (laughs) So... Uh, A little bit of fake news from the pulpit here. (laughs) Uh, I misremembered what I read. It was one in eight people have no friends. I got the eight right. It was just in the wrong place. So anyway, one in eight people or about 13% of the population. That's still pretty bad. Uh, And it is a, a testimony to the condition that we're in where we feel isolated, removed and even alienated from people, suspicious of people. And so uh, this is why we've chosen to, s- to take some time here, about eight weeks total, to talk about the importance of friendship, how to build friendships, and how to nourish them. We spent last week introducing this idea that we need to feed our friendships, feed our friendships with wisdom and godliness. How do we do that? Uh, How can we nourish friendships with the good food of God's wisdom? And we're going to spend another uh, period this morning talking about that same subject. How do we feed our friendships? Uh, We're going to come up with two keys to nourish our friendships in, in godly ways and with wisdom. First, we need to just face up to the fact that friendships fail. And we need to face up to why they fail. Very often, we find ourselves saying of friendships, well, it just didn't work out, or we drifted apart, or uh, we, we use these kinds of phrases as if to say, eh, it was no big deal, there was no big disaster, uh, there, was, there, there was nothing that happened, but we just kind of went separate ways. And this is our little way of covering up the pain and the magnitude of what so often happens in our friendships. Friendships do not fail because we drift apart. Friendships fail because we make decisions that lead to failure. Specifically, friendships fail because we make decisions about how to handle conflict that destroy friendship. We're going to look this morning at two kinds of behavior that, that um, heighten, aggravate conflict and make conflict um, far worse than it needs to be and that ultimately uh, destroy friendships. And the two behaviors we're going to be talking about are some of the most painful things that happened to people. It, uh, this whole series has been one that has been close to me as I preach it this morning as we talk about these topics. You know, some weeks uh, the, the topic of the sermon is closer to the preacher than others. And this one is very close to me about really the things that we do that uh, poison friendships. And uh, like you, like everyone in this room, we have experienced painful things where people turn their backs on us 
and kick us when we're down and have no regard for our dignity, our needs, or their promises to us. And that these things come to a head in the midst of conflicts that could be handled better, could be handled with wisdom. And so just all cards on the table here, uh, as I preach through these things, these things are close to where I have been over the last two or three years just because ministry in this church and, and this ministry that we are all part of, of restarting a church and, and seeing the Lord bring it back from the brink of closure. That ministry has cost me lifelong friends. And so the things that we're talking about this morning, sometimes I can be distant from them. This morning, I'm really not. And so after uh, years of uh, wrestling through these things, uh, I do see healing from these things. And so will you as you seek the Lord on, on these kinds of hurts and losses in your life. But nevertheless... Um, I just want to acknowledge that, and I want to uh, say the examples I'm going to give this morning are really not from here, or this church. I'm going to give you some examples and stories that are from way back in my ministry where I turn my mind back over what the Lord has done over 20-plus years in ministry, and I can really see how His grace restores relationships and brings them back, and that is our hope, and that is what we are uh, turning our hearts toward this morning as we study this. Uh, how do you cause a friendship to fail? Aggression and deceit are tried and true ways to bring about failure in a friendship. And how do we come back from those kinds of things. Can we come back from those kinds of failures in our relationships? Can our God restore friendships when these kinds of things have happened? The answer is yes. We come back through His grace, through forgiveness, through growth, through all of these kinds of things. And those of us who have been around churches a while we know that there are times of hurt and times even of devastation. But when we trust God and we hang in there and when we see His healing and grace shape us and mold us, over the period of years we really see what His grace can do. He takes our failures and He makes us more like Him through those very failures. We're going to talk about all of these things this morning. Let's look first at um, a behavior that destroys friendships, um, whether the friendship be new or old, aggression destroys relationships. And so the question of how do we nourish a friendship we, it, we really have to confront this issue of aggressive behavior. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 of Proverbs 25. What your eyes have seen do not hastily bring into court. 
For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. Um, These are strong words. They're describing the kind of aggression that wants to go public with a conflict. So you're in a disagreement with somebody, in this case, your neighbor, and remember, every time we see the word neighbor in Proverbs, you gotta put a little slash mark, neighbor slash friend, because the, the word is the same for our two English words. This is the person near you, the person who is a part of your life because they live right next to you and you deal with them every day, or emotionally, or in your work life and career, they are right there with you and you see them all the time and you need to deal with them in a, in a proper way and in a godly way. It's that person that we are talking about and this is saying, don't go public with your conflicts with your friend. And in this case, he is saying, don't sue them. Don't bring someone into court quickly um, when you have a disagreement with them. Uh, And here's the reason why. Do not hastily bring them into court for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame. The issue here is haste and aggression. Why do we take people to court? Why do we threaten to sue them? Why do we go public with our conflicts? Well, let's think about politicians for a moment. Why do they go public with their, con- with their conflicts? So you think of uh, Congress. You've got all of these uh, you know, 535 congressmen and women senators all there trying to cut deals and pass legislation and you know that they are having all sorts of conversations in private and they are cutting all sorts of deals. Why do they go public when they aren't getting their way in the negotiations? Why are there leaks of secret meetings and why, why are there these kinds of things where we're going to run to the, the newspapers or the bloggers or the TV station or whoever it is and we're going to go public with our conflicts? Very simple, power. When you put your story out there, you're making a grab for power against the person that you're having a disagreement with. So right there... If we consider this, your neighbor living next to you, your co-worker, your friend who is a part of your life is winning so important that you will go public and destroy the friendship in order to win. Is winning that big a deal to you? Is winning that big a deal to me that I would destroy the friendship and take this argument and prosecute it in public? That really is the question. And Solomon here is saying, watch out. You may think in the heat of the moment that you've got a great case that you should win hands down, whether it's in a court of law or the boss, 
or the court of public opinion or the court of all your friends. There are many different ways we go public, aren't there? Sometimes uh, we go public by doing an end run, to, uh, end run around someone at work or we go public by uh, complaining about one of our friends to all of our other friends. Whatever it may be, this is a power move to make sure that the person we're having a conflict with is put in a bad light in, ev in, in front of everyone we know. It's a way to shame people. It's a way to degrade them, leave them undignified and on the defensive. That's why we do it. There is no other reason. We're not, let me put it this way. When we treat our friends this way, we are not treating them that way in the interest of righteousness, are we? We're doing it to win, period. And winning and righteousness are not really the same thing. They just look the same sometimes when we're really mad about something. So this proverb is saying, watch out. In the heat of the moment, you may want to take your conflict with somebody, drag it out into public so that everybody sees what you're going through with this person. When you do that, Solomon says, your aggression could roll back on you. Your aggression could come back and bite you. What are you going to do, verse 8, in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Because in fact, in the heat of the moment, you miscalculated and you took him to court and he had the better case. What are you going to do then? What are you going to do when in front of all your friends you've made a big stink about this person in your life but in fact over time the person you're complaining about has the better case the stronger case you know what I've found the person who fights hardest and loudest is almost always in the wrong it's that old Shakespeare line methinks he doth protest too much. We've got a guilty conscience operating there. And uh, so, you know, as we, as we look at a political scene that is in many ways mirroring what our private relationships are like, as we look at the political scene and you look at people um, putting out clickbait and fake news and putting out uh, leaks and making public charges and all of these kinds of things and everybody is doing it today. Every side of the aisle is doing this kind of disreputable stuff. And what does that serve to do? It just increases the anger, the striving, the wrangling. It increases the aggression across our society. We're seeing it more and more and more. We need to be the people who say, we're not going to go public, we're going to keep our conflicts private. Look with me at the next verse, verse 9. Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret. So this is basically what the Lord Jesus says 
in the famous passage, Matthew 18. He says to his disciples, as we studied this a couple of weeks ago and Sunday evenings, he says, I don't care how right you are, I don't care how much the other person has sinned against you, go to him alone and appeal to him alone. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother and you've preserved his dignity and you've kept the conflict within bounds. There's not aggression there. There's no power playing. There's no shaming going on. You're just going in an open statement. Here's what I'm seeing and here's what needs to happen. This is so simple. It's so straightforward and it's so hard. Because we'd rather gain power by talking about people than gain people by talking to them. Let me say that again. Matthew 18 and verse 9 here is really hard because we'd rather gain power by talking about people than gain people by talking to them. Totally different approach. And what Solomon is saying here is, if you want to nourish your friendships, take aggression out of your relationships. Go softer. Appeal to the person in private. And in doing this, what you're demonstrating is that you value the relationship more than you value winning. Anyone can win in the short term by being aggressive. But it takes a wise and godly person to have the self-control to stop the aggression and the slander and just go to the person, work it out with them and show that you value the relationship first. So Solomon says that. Then he says something about shame here. It's a word that came up um, in verse 8. It comes up again in verse 10. In verse 8, it reads like this. What will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Okay, you sued him. You made a big stink about this. What are you going to do when it comes to light that he or she was right and you were wrong? What about that? So he says it again in a slightly different way. In verse 10, argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. This is saying that the person who hears your complaint about this person over here, the, that person is going to be the one or could be the one who says, this doesn't smell right. I don't like how you're talking about that person. I don't even know that person. Why are you bringing this issue that you have with that person over there to me? Because this is none of my concern. And when you fall into the kind of, of rut, the kind of pit, where you are that person constantly stoking the fires of discord, in the relationships around you and involving other people in conflicts that should stay private, when you're that person, you get a reputation 
and it sticks and it will never go away. It takes a great deal of time to recover your, rep- your reputation once you are found to be a gossip and a slanderer. I'd like you to look at some strong words in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Proverbs six sixteen. There are six things that the Lord hates. Well, that gets my attention. What does God hate? What gets him burning with wrath? What are those things? There are six of them, seven, that are an abomination to him. I wonder what those are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is saying that there is there is a fire of animosity and hostility on heaven's throne against us when we commit acts of aggression against our friends. That fire burns hot and it does not go out. And anytime we see the Lord saying, I nurture a hatred of that behavior. We got to watch out. Because this is saying that the Lord values our relationships. He values our bonds. If he values them and we do not, that means we're trespassing on his property. Or maybe you could put it even more simply. Your friendships don't belong to you alone. And other people's friendships don't belong to you. They belong to God. They're God's property. He treasures them. He watches over them. And when those things are trashed and violated, who is the first to stand up and say, I am offended to the core of my soul? It's God. So uh, we are talking about something here that is disturbingly common and that uh, stokes God's wrath and ire. Um, This needs to give us pause here. So to our main question from verses 8 through 10, how do you nourish a friendship? You nourish a friendship with respect. You nourish a friendship by saying, I'm valuing our relationship more than winning. I'd rather maintain what we have in our fellowship together. I'd rather do that than be right, than be proven right. I'd rather do those things.
Many years ago, I was part of a very small church. And at the center of this church was a web of relationships that was basically characterized by complaining. Um, you know, we, we tend to think small churches are so wonderful and they're these, this idyllic little uh, place where everybody knows you and uh, everybody knows your name and, and when, when you come in, you, everybody says, Norm, and oh, that's a bar. I, I, but anyway, we think of small churches that way. And uh, I think we can get real here and say, they're not. Sometimes small churches are full of vipers and poison. And they're small for a reason. They're small because any hapless person who has the misfortune to wander into that thicket is going to get stung by the complaining, the gossiping, the refusal to treat people respectfully, all in the name of, oh, we're a family. We just, we talk about everything. Yeah. Uh, if you're the family that talks about everything, I can predict certain elements of your family's life. Discord, quarreling, lack of respect, lack of understanding of boundaries, lack of understanding of what privacy is. Well, that characterized this, this small church, and as the pastor of that church, I began to find that uh, I would go to this person and work something out with them only to find that it would come unstuck later. And then I would go to that person over there, try to work that out with them, and it would come unstuck too. You could never nail anything down. Why? Because the actual relationships were conducted in complaining sessions. That's where the decisions were actually made. And so you had a web of, net, uh, of relationships where we think we're so open and we're committed to discipleship and sharing with each other, but in fact, we're just gossiping and slandering about each other. And at a certain point, it reached this place where it just exploded. One person made the wrong complaint and everything spun out of control. And you can imagine what happened there. Praise God, the church ceased to exist. There is a time when we should be glad that God smites a network of relationships, breaks them up because they're toxic. And this happened to this group of people. That church doesn't exist anymore. Um, and he moved us on and uh, moved us on to blessing and fruitfulness and taught us many, many things. I learned so many things as a pastor from from that year of trying to do, verse 9 here, argue your case with your neighbor himself, only to find, no, that's not how business is conducted here. Um, learned a great deal. So how do we nourish relationships? Well, what I see you all doing, I see you having the respect to keep your conflicts private. When you come to me, you're genuinely coming to me saying, I need perspective here because my, the way I am handling this situation is wrong, it's counterproductive, and I need to do something about this. 
I'm not getting a lot of people coming to me saying, do you know about this person over here and you know, what they did to me and how offensive it was? I'm not getting a lot of that. Praise God. Because you are purposefully nourishing your relationships with respect and you're keeping these things private, secret even. Sometimes you won't even tell me the name of the person you're talking about. You just say, it doesn't matter who this person is, but I'm in this situation. What is my role here? That's fantastic. Because what it does is it keeps a respectful privacy around that conflict. And God can use that. It's like drawing the curtain in the hospital room. It protects people's dignity and it allows healing to go on behind that curtain where uh, there is no disrespect and humiliation. So, good job on that. Keep it up. Purpose in your heart to keep this up. And it will nourish your friendships here and everywhere you go. Um, let's talk about the next behavior that destroys relationships and then what we can conclude about nourishing friendships uh, in that. And that's deception, verses 18 and 19. By the way, I would commend to you all of the other verses that Nancy read about a word fitly spoken and patience when persuading a ruler and a soft tongue. I mean, all of this stuff, it's so good in terms of being faithful to people with our words. But uh, I want us to drop down to verses 18 and 19. The next kind of behavior that um, destroys relationships is deception. Verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. So false witness, what is that? This is really talking about courts, public cases, where you take an oath, I am telling the truth, and then you lie. This is talking about perjury. So uh, the, one, one puts in mind the Ten Commandments, the commandment that says, you shall not bear false witness. You ever wonder why it's worded that way? So witness that's a public action that you take to give information about something that went down that uh, a court of law is looking into. Bearing false witness is walking into that courtroom, taking that vow where everyone is depending upon you to give true information and all of those things. And you, you walk into that courtroom and you swear falsely and you bear false witness in that court of law. And uh, so this is a very formal phrase. It does evoke uh, the Ten Commandments here. And uh, so Solomon is saying, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor slash friend goes into court and lies, goes into the boss's office and lies, goes to the inspector and lies, goes to the teacher the counselor, the pastor, the elder, these kinds of authority situations where you're saying, I am going to get that guy. 
I am going to so box him in that he won't be able to get out of this. And then what's he going to do? So this is the kind of public uh, lying that we're talking about here. It's, It's the sort of thing where you're publicly on the hook for it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can bear false witness privately where there's no oath involved, but this is specifically about civic life. Where we're trying to cooperate here, we're trying to conduct business, we're trying to do the jobs that need to be done, we're trying to keep people safe on the streets, we're trying to do all of this stuff that we do in civic life and have a thriving business atmosphere and then in all of that you have liars who will sign contracts falsely, make false promises, go on the record saying things that simply are not true. What does that do to a city? What does that do to a nation? What does that do to a church when the only thing you can know for sure is that the stuff being said is not true? Let me pause here and and even take a step back further from that. What is truth? What does it mean to say something that is true? What does the Bible have to say about this? Is, Is true for me enough? Is, well, that's just how I feel feel enough is well that's my opinion that's what I think and I'm not persuadable is that enough to rise to the level of truth no truth is truth that's when you say something that is accurate and what what do we mean by that we mean that what you describe actually took place in real life Imaginary friends are not included in this. Imaginary scenarios, dreams, desires, fantasies, all of that, gone. Hit delete on all of that because it does not rise to the level of truth. We've got a society today and we've got churches today that seem to think that society is going to run so much better if we all just kind of vent and call that authenticity and truth. It's not. So, a man who bears false witness, this guy might just be a self-indulgent witness who mixes in a court of law something that he thinks, an opinion about something that happened with his testimony about what happened. You see the distinction there? This happens all the time. I get reports about what I say that are very interesting. I'm sure you do too. Uh, Well, you said this. I did? I think maybe that's what you heard. Maybe that's what you wanted me to say. But I did not say that. In other words, Solomon is saying this issue of being accurate in what you say strikes at the heart of your friendships. 
It can either nourish your friendships with respect for the truth and loyalty to the truth, or it can destroy your friendships with constant inaccuracy, falsehood, lying, even the dreaded serial sincerity. Remember that term? You believe it when you say it, but the next thing you say, you're equally sincere about, and that's totally different from what you said before. Serial sincerity is the act of justifying everything that you say by, well, I really mean it at the time, but of course later I don't really mean it, as if sincerity is your out, sincerity is your, your cover. It's not. Sincerity is only as good as the truthfulness of what is being said. So, um, if we combine this with um, the aggression we just talked about in verses 8 through 10, if you've got a, a network of people who are constantly, aggressively attacking each other, taking all their private conflicts and going public, do you have accuracy there? Probably not. Probably what you've got is a whole lot of slander, the spreading of falsehood about people. And these are the things that are most hurtful about church life when, when things go poorly and we decide to go in for this kind of thing. So this, uh, this man in verse 18 who bears false witness, here's the thing. He or she may be completely sincere and completely false. That's a real thing. So what is that like? Solomon says it's like a war club. You get a big baseball bat. You hold it up like this. If I were to do that in a room like this, what would you people in the front row be doing? Even, even if I were not making any motions with it, just holding it, much less kind of swinging the thing around. That's a war club. That's threatening behavior. False witness is an aggression, a, an act of violence against someone else's dignity. So, uh, it's like a war club or a sword. Malcolm uh, got a, a katana. Is that what that thing's called? Okay. Ninja. You've got to picture this amazing ninja sword. And uh, it's great. He, he, he loves it and he treats it very well. He treats everything around him very well with the sword. It's, it's very good. He's very safe with it. But I'm a father. I look at the sword. I look at all the stuff that could happen and I'm thinking, ah, ooh. And so why? Because a sword is inherently a threatening thing. It has to be handled rightly. False witness takes that sword and starts swinging it around. It's dangerous. It's threatening. Or a sharp arrow. Same principle. You get out um, archery stuff. You sure better handle it right. Because that arrow could be fatal. Uh, that's false witness. 
So uh, let's look at the next behavior, verse 19. Betrayal. Trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Um, I broke a tooth once. I'm not eager to repeat that experience. I was chewing on some gum and I just, you, you feel that pop and all of a sudden that tooth is a goner. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a very unpleasant experience, kind of put me off gum for a while. Uh, so this is saying you're trusting in a treacherous person. What's treachery? Treachery is giving the impression of loyalty and then yanking it away. It's like flattery, which gives the impression of love. But treachery can only work if you're giving the impression, I'm loyal to you, I'm on your team, and then all of a sudden you're not on the person's team. Trusting a treacherous man in a time of trouble when you need that person and you've conveyed, conferred your trust upon them and they disappear. Or they stab you in the back, or they kick you when you're down, or whatever it may be. We've all experienced this, unfortunately. This is, this is not something that is unique to anyone, but the pain of it feels unique, doesn't it? It makes you feel very alone. And so, trusting, a, a, trusting in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad foot bad foot or a tooth that slips. I've messed that up. Like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. So you're climbing a rock that's loose and you can't just get your footing. It keeps slipping. You keep sliding down the slope. That's what that's like. So, how do you nourish a friendship? If these things, aggression and deceit, are so threatening to our friendships, if they poison our friendships, how do we nourish them? Well, with the first Proverbs, we said you nourish friendship with respect, privacy, secrecy. Draw that curtain over a conflict. In this case, you nourish a friendship with loyalty, fidelity where what you say is what you're going to do. Your word is your bond. That is how you nourish a friendship. There are no substitutes. Loyalty is um, irreplaceable. We're trying to live in a society without loyalty. We're trying to make this work where you don't have to, from the heart, bind yourself to your words and promises to another person. We're trying to make it work where everybody has an out for every promise that they make. Everybody has an out from every relationship that becomes inconvenient to them. How's it going? Aren't we actually destroying the fabric of our civil society, our relationships, and our families? Because there is no substitute for loyalty. Loyalty is a basic, it is a relationship staple. Can't live without it.
So, two simple keys to nourishing friendships. Respect conferred in privacy in a conflict. And then, loyalty. When conflict hits your relationships, respect and privacy mixed with loyalty, no matter how this comes out, we're together. That combination over a period of years will nourish your friendship with good stuff. Now, that raises the question, what do you do after disloyalty? How do we handle that? Before we move on to that, let me just make one more observation. Why are we being told this? Why is Solomon telling us that a man who bears false witness is like a war club? Why are we being told that a disloyal person is like a bad tooth? Because Solomon is saying, you are responsible for your relationships. You have the right and the duty to decide for yourself, I am going to trust this person this much. I'm going to evaluate this. I don't have to open myself up to everything that comes along. Solomon is saying you have a responsibility to evaluate the relationships you're in. Evaluate people for, can I really, is it really safe to trust this person before I've seen their loyalty? Maybe I should build up that trust first. Maybe I should take it step by step rather than just opening myself up to whoever this person is. Solomon is saying you have the right and the duty to evaluate the people you relate to. And it's your job to build it and nourish it. And you can do that. God's wisdom empowers you to say, with this person, I'm going slow. I'm going to start by giving this much trust and I'm going to give it freely and sincerely and we'll build up from there. And I believe it will build up from there. That's a godly, wise approach to relationships. There is no problem with that. That is not being judgmental. That's being smart in a godly way. And it's being safe, especially if you have responsibility for other people like wife and children, husband and children, uh, you, you have a tremendous um, duty to evaluate the people around you. Now, how do we recover from disloyalty? Our model is Jesus. There were two people who were disloyal to Jesus. One was Judas, the other was Peter. They have very different endings to their stories, don't they? Let's think about this. Turn with me in the Gospel of John. You know these stories. We're just going to quickly uh, remind ourselves of them. John chapter 12. This is the story of Mary 
anointing Jesus' feet with a pound of expensive ointment. And off to the side in this scene is Judas Iscariot, judging Mary for doing this. You remember why? What a waste. Um, Verse 4 of John chapter 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, John says, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this. Now think about that. This amazing act of worship is taking place right in front of you in that room, and Judas goes public with what's on his mind and attacks it. Why is he doing that? Why do we go public with the conflicts in our minds that should be private, power, shaming, bullying? That's what he's doing here. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? How very sanctimonious. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. I mean, that is just, it's dastardly. Remember that word? So you only see it in comic books anymore. (laughs) But we need to bring that back. It's a good word. This is villainous. Because you've got this pious front, and behind it is just rottenness and dead men's bones. And so he says this, and Jesus rebukes him, says, well, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Worship is better. Question. Does Judas go to Jesus privately anywhere in the Gospels to argue about this priority? No. No. Why? Because it's a total fraud, that's why. He won't talk to Jesus about this because Jesus knows what Judas is doing, sees it. And so he's going to take this public shaming route and make the thing public rather than um, pursuing what is actually at the heart of the matter for Judas, which who knows what that was. Who knows when it was that Jesus did something with the twelve and inside Judas it tipped and all of a sudden he couldn't stand Jesus anymore. Who knows what that was? Could be a word he said to Judas. Could be a word he said to somebody else that Judas got jealous of. Who knows? So you've got this, this refusal to respect the dignity of Mary, the dignity of Jesus himself in this moment and an act of aggression. Judas betrays Jesus. He is that treacherous man, the the foot that slips, sells Jesus out, reveals his secret and sends him, he thinks, to the cross. He commits suicide. That's one trajectory here. Then there's Peter. You know what Peter did. He denied Jesus at least three times. You line up all the times 
all of the occasions reported in the Gospels, you discover something interesting that some of them obviously are not the same. So Peter has a whole night while Jesus is headed to the cross and is on trial where he's saying, I'm not with him. I'm not one of those guys. I don't even know. You don't even know what you're talking about. Denies Jesus at least three times, probably more. So publicly, he has betrayed Jesus. He's exactly the same. He won't stand with Jesus at the cross. He won't, when it's actually about to cost Peter something, he backs off and won't stand with Jesus in the day of trouble. He is the bad tooth and the foot that slips. So what happens to him? Is he out on his ear? We've been looking at John 21 to see what kind of friend Jesus is. And we saw that um, Jesus confronted Peter in John 21, asked him three times, do you love me? Goes back over this ground. He says two things to Peter that uh, say a lot about his story. Um, he repeats several times, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, take care of my lambs. You're still in this ministry. You're back, and in fact, you're boss. I'm putting you in charge. And Jesus does this whole work in public, in front of the other disciples as they share breakfast, he does this whole work of restoration, how different this is from the way we operate, where publicly we castigate and we shame. And Jesus publicly is doing the work of restoration, raising Peter back up. And uh, he says, basically, Peter, what you sincerely wanted to do when I went to the cross, you did not do. You did not follow me to prison and to death. You ducked out. But Peter, you will give your life for me. You will sacrifice yourself for me. The aspirations that you have, I am going to bring to pass in your life. And so Jesus restores Peter. What's the difference? They're both guilty of sin, pretty much equally. One is restored, the other kills himself in despair. There's really only one difference, faith in Jesus himself. I would put it to you that if you have been hurt by um, treachery, lying, any of these things, if people have hurt you, your job is to follow the Lord and see healing over a period of years in those relationships and maybe in other relationships. And you're going to have to trust God to restore relationships that uh, you just don't see how it can ever be put back. Um, your job is to trust God and keep following Him and let the Lord use the pain of betrayal to change you. If you do that, you will come out the other side whole, healed, well, 
and ready for ministry. Peter did this, except he did it from another perspective. You may be the person here this morning saying, I'm the betrayer. Everything you're talking about, I did. It's a pattern of my life. What do I do? Is there any hope for me? Because I'm feeling a lot like Judas right now. Like I just want to go out and find a tree and do the deed right there. Before you this morning are two paths. If you're the betrayer, one path is the path of despair saying, I am the one who determines my righteousness. And my personal honor is what determines whether I am right before God. Or the other path, the path of Peter saying, not righteous. I'm a sinner. I am a betrayer. I am not worthy to be here. But my righteousness before God is supplied by Jesus. And so he overcomes my betrayal. That path is open to you today. And you can see restoration in your relationships. You can nourish your current friendships by following that path. Let's pray about this right now. Lord Jesus, if there is someone here devastated by betrayal, and if they are crying out to you, Lord, I don't know you. All I know is that I am hurt badly, but I see that you have been betrayed, and so you understand. And I see that you have died for my sins. Please forgive me, restore me, live in me, help me. If that person prays to you, Lord Jesus, in something like those words, I pray that you would pour out your spirit to them in this instant. I pray for the, the person who is confessing to you right now, I am the betrayer. This is me. But I look at how you restored Peter you died for my sins. I know it. Will you forgive me, cleanse me, and teach me your ways? If that person cries out to you in that way with those kinds of words, I pray that you would answer their prayers and that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we lift all of our relationships up to you for your grace and nourishment this morning. We pray it in your name and for your sake. Amen. I will take some questions about this, and I have a couple. If you need to go, we are running a little long this morning, and I recognize that. So if you need to go, this is a good time to slip out, and uh, I understand that. We all understand that. But if you want to stay, we'll take some questions here. Okay. Thank you. First question. Oops. Proverbs 6.16, God hates these things, but it does not say God hates these people. No, it does not. 
That means that the call of Proverbs is change. God is, is, is laying out these behaviors, and like in Proverbs uh, 6, saying God hates the lying tongue. He hates those who sow discord. He's saying turn, change. And uh, all of Proverbs is this call and this invitation of wisdom saying, leave your folly, listen to me, I will pour out my heart to you. And so uh, it is very true, that observation. Um, How do you deal with treachery and lying in the face of notions like perception is reality? Or, uh, (laughs) I'm not sure where this is coming from, but... Women are emotional and don't really say what they mean. Uh, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, how, how do you deal with this idea that perception is reality, so the way you are perceived is, is how you should be dealt with? Um, many people are operating from this ethic that if I can gain advantage by making you look bad, then I will do it. And I will do that to pressure you into doing what I want you to do. In fact, our whole society is doing this and constantly doing this to Christians. We will call you bigots and we will call you all of these things to shame you into doing what we want you to do. Um, And it is uh, sometimes tempting to believe that perception is reality. I will just tell you that I live constantly in this world of perception as a public person everything that I say everything that I do every action that I take is interpreted in ways that I cannot control and is used um, both uh, to praise me and to attack me and both are usually incorrect I am praised for things that really don't matter very much and I'm attacked for things that are not true Um, So, this is my world, the world where people want their perception to govern what I do. And I will just tell you that um, there is freedom in saying, um, I do not live by your perceptions. I live by God's commands and God's judgment on me. And like Paul, I'm saying, I don't even judge myself. I don't know of anything against me, but that doesn't clear me. God knows all of those things. I'm accountable to him. And so if you want me to do something, make your case. Say why it would be a good thing. And then let's talk about that. But if, if you imagine that you're going to pressure me into doing something because you, you can attack me based on perceptions, it's been tried. And my God has never allowed those perceptions to gain the upper hand. He looks after me when I'm right and when I'm wrong, especially when I'm wrong. So trying to operate on the basis of other people's perceptions is a a profound 
trap and uh, very important to escape that trap. Actually, let me just say this, this a bit more. Some of you are absolutely dominated by the perceptions of others. Your hearts are enslaved to what other people think about you. It is profoundly important that you seek liberation in Jesus Christ so that you can draw a, a line and say, this is me, for better or worse, I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm open to correction, but make your case and stop trying to manipulate me. You have the right to say that. It's the right thing to say. Very good question. Although I'm not commenting on that women thing. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> leaving that right there. You defined what truth is not. Could you clarify what truth is? Okay, I'm going to give you a very technical definition here. Truth is the correspondence between your words and reality. The words you say correspond to things that have actually happened, actually been said, really been done. That's truth. When God speaks to us, he doesn't speak in vague words and give us vague promises that he will honor in spirit but not according to the letter. He says, take me at my word. My word is truth. So the key word here about truth is correspondence. You want to make what you say match what is real. If you don't know what is real, then say, I don't know. I have opinions, but I don't know. So let's talk about it and maybe we can find out what is real together. That's perfectly okay. I love that. We, we, we get a lot of traction out of that around here. But asserting something as true just because you think it, no, that's, that's not going to... Uh, do the job. Um, I hope that helps. Um, okay. This is from my son Dylan. Could you repeat all that? I wasn't listening. <laughs> oh, wait. You don't have to because the sermon videos are up. <laughs> We've got an advertising genius up there. He's, he's a budding entrepreneur. How do you confront a person without sounding like a complaint? Um, one way would be just to say, I gotta bring this to you and I'm gonna do a terrible job of it. I hope you'll trust me. This, this won't be easy, but I just, I've got to do this so that we can clear the air. What I, I, I don't have a problem with people bumbling through confrontation. Um, I have a problem with people bluffing through confrontation. There's a big difference. 
When I bumble through confrontations because I don't want to hurt somebody and I'm choosing my words poorly and I'm stumbling around and I don't know what to say. When I'm bluffing through confrontation, that means I am trying to brazen it out. I want to say things that aren't true and get away with it. There's a big difference. So uh, what, um, what I would do if, if, you, if you're afraid of sounding like a complaint um, and you're confronting somebody, just say, look, I'm bad at this. I don't do well at this, but I, I need to clear the air. Would you help me with this? And I would find that's normally a disarming thing. I can help you with that. If you, you want some strategies on how to approach those things. Um, you said we'd rather give power by talking about people than gain people by talking to them. Is the power we'd rather gain some, sometimes insidious and difficult to recognize? I would say it is always insidious and difficult to recognize. When you're in the heat of anger and passion and self-justification, you're sure that you're right, and you don't recognize the aggression that is coming out and shaming the other person. That's the whole problem. And so um, I would say that is the biggest reason to say don't be hasty, slow down, wait, um, and don't shoot off your mouth because uh, our motivations are insidious. Are there other reasons we might want to uh, avoid confrontation? Um, well, you just outed yourself there, Jacob. Uh, thank you. Uh, it, why might we want to avoid confrontation? Um, because we're afraid of people, we're afraid of being wrong, we're afraid of being humiliated, and we're afraid of being hurt like back there last time. I think what we have to do is realize that being hurt is not the end of the world. Being Bitter, being hypocritical, being false is the end of the world. Look at what it did to Judas. Um, so good, um, let's see, I, I better make this the last one. Jesus re equates anger at another, raka, idiot or fool with murder. Can gossip be equated with hands that shed innocent blood. Um, since he breaks it out on its own, I would say no. Uh, God hates murder, but do you really want to trifle with, the, with bleeding somebody out relationally and gossip? Because it is pretty close, isn't it? So uh, these are important things, what fantastic questions you have, um, and a heavy subject, at least for me, and probably for you too. So let's call a halt here and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you to give us grace and power as we go from this place, that we would demonstrate who you are, and that we would give you the glory that you deserve. We ask you to do it in your name and for your sake. Amen.